I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you're listening to Don't Mess With Nature, a series of podcasts where we look at how we can get financial capital into a better state of equilibrium with natural capital. Well, on today's podcast, which I've sort of called Banking on Nature, because it's a story of banks. In fact, a story of two governors of a bank. In this case, the Bank of England. And I want to think about the first governor of the Bank of England and the last governor of the Bank of England. Central banks are the sort of high priests of the financial system. They control the money nationally and try to keep us on a safe track. That's their role. That's what central bankers have to do. They set the rules uh, along with regulators, and there are different regulators for banks and regulators for investors and regulators for insurers. But it's usually the governor of the bank of something that calls the shots. And if you go all the way back to 1694, there was no Bank of England until a man came along called William Patterson. He was a Scotsman. He was very rich, made a lot of money out of somewhat dodgy things like slavery. But he was very rich, and he came up with the idea of, he, he moved south, and uh, shouldn't we have a Bank of England that was sort of, would be able to control the money of the nation? This was a revolutionary idea at the time. And in fact, that's what he did. And in 1694, he was one of the first directors, in a sense, a governor of the Bank of England. He was a pretty remarkable man, actually. And you can imagine, think of it back then, all those incredible frock coats that they wore, wonderful colors, bit of gold trim, black shoes with buckles on, white stockings, strutting around London, and an incredible wig with hair down to their shoulders. That's what he looked like. And unfortunately, he got a bit pissed off with the bank, didn't like it, and had a bit of a falling out, and he, off he went back to Scotland. But he always had a good idea under that wig. And the idea that he came up with was to create a trading colony for Scotland. Where? In Panama. Now, that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? If you're living in Scotland to set up a trading colony in Panama, on the other side of the Atlantic, in the middle of the rainforest. What was this guy on? What he thought was that Scotland, which is a great seafaring nation, it was very poor, uh, didn't have much money, it needed to do what other nations were doing, which was amazing trade. It hadn't got a trading colony. And that's what everybody was setting up at the time. So he thought, guess what? If we can set up a colony in Panama, we can trade Scottish goods across the isthmus of Panama into the Pacific. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because that little strip of land that joins North and South America, which is Panama today, in those days, it was called Darien. And there's a great backbone of mountains, one side in the Pacific, the other side in the Atlantic, covered in rainforests. And the first guy in England, from an Englishman, to climb up to the top of those mountains and get a view of the Pacific from a tall tree that he Strugged up, the local Indians took him all the way there from the coast up to the top of this tree, was none other than the famous English seafarer Sir Francis Drake. 
And he got his first sight of the Pacific from that tree and said, vowed he would be the first Englishman ever to sail into the Pacific. And indeed he was some years later when he sailed around Cape Horn and went into the Pacific. Well, Patterson's idea, he went everywhere to try and raise money. But in the end, he went to his people in Scotland. He raised loads of money. And off he went. And he managed to get all the ships together, the money together, to create something called the Noble Company of Scotland. And they sailed out from the Port of Leith in Scotland with three ships in 1698, crossed the Atlantic, and set up this colony, which today is called, and you can find it on a map, right down in the southern end of Panama, on the Atlantic side, it's called Punta Escoces, Scots Point. And it looks like a Norwegian fjord. There's a great peninsula of land that sticks out, and this great tongue of water, which is a safe harbor. And they got in there, and they built a fort called Fort St. Andrew. They built a colony called New Edinburgh, houses, wells. And this was the noble company of Scotland. And everybody thought, this is incredible. It's going to be a trading port and everything. But William Patterson hadn't done his thinking about nature. And nature messed with the colony. Because he hadn't really taken into account what it means to walk into a rainforest with a pair of bagpipes wearing a hot Scottish kilt and with loads of mosquitoes. Because what did them in was, of course, malaria and yellow fever. And they started dying like flies. In the end, the colony was a total disaster. And to find out what happened, I went out there in 1978 with the Scientific Exploration Society, led by Colonel Blashford Snell and a bunch of other people. And we went to investigate what remained of that colony for a future expedition there. It was the first expedition I ever did. It was my first introduction to the rainforest. And to get there, you had to fly to Panama City. Then you fly down a little plane to the San Blas Islands on the Caribbean side. And I was sent out early with a pair of shorts and a red T-shirt and a floppy hat, not having a clue what I was doing as a young zoologist said, can you secure the canoes that will take us from Mulatupu Island, the last one in the chain, down to the Scottish colony? And I arrived there green as anything. And I had cigarettes and T-shirts to give the chiefs. Sorry about the cigarettes. That was de rigueur at the time. And I arrived there. And the problem was, which chief do you give them to? Because there's loads of different islands. So I was taken around from one island to another. And they said, no, that's, that's the island. You go. He's, he's the most important chief. So I'd, anyway, by the time I'd done this a few times, I'd run out of cigarettes and T-shirts. And I ended up in Mulutupu. And I thought, I, we've got to negotiate with the chiefs. Now, these are Kuna Indians. The Kuna Indians, curiously, the men still wear trilby hats, big, floppy cotton shirts, and gray trousers, rather like the Scottish colonists. And people said that that was actually a hangover from the time of the colonists. The women, of course, are completely different. Black hair, pudding basin haircuts, lovely gold rings in their noses and ears, and these wonderful things called molars, which have become very fashionable. It's reversed applique of tops that they wear and sarongs, and wonderful beads and gold rings around their feet spectacular, wonderful dancing, wonderful flute playing, and they live on little islands off the coast. Guess why they live there? To avoid the mosquitoes. That's something that the Scots should have learned. They didn't listen to the local people. They went and sat on the land, got bitten to death. The Kuna are all on the islands offshore. So I'm sitting in there in one of these, the Congress Hall, which is a great big hut with lots of palm thatch on the top in my shorts. 
t-shirt, listening to the chiefs and the hammocks are all swinging. And I, I noticed they started to get very angry and point at me. And I thought, well, this doesn't look at all good. I better leave. So I left and compounded the problem because I left when the chief of the chiefs was actually giving his whole parley about whether they were going to give us the canoes or not. So I actually you know, disrespected him by walking out because I thought that was the best thing. Anyway, I found myself in this hut. There's a wonderful people on the islands of the Kuna, and they're called Children of the Moon. They're albinos. And for some reason, there are a lot of albinos there. And uh, they're often uh, rather, they don't only go out at night. That's why they're called the Children of the Moon. And they, they're very clever. They often run the shops. And one of them had a typewriter underneath his bed, which came in very useful because what the chief said was, I want a letter from the government of Panama saying, uh, you know, you've got a right to be here and I want some T-shirts and cigarettes. So anyway, I managed to get a radio signal back to the other party who were coming and said, bring some cigarettes and T-shirts and I'll give you a letter on arrival and it'll be fine. So we typed out this letter from the government of Panama and I had a government official with me who helped me do that. So Anyway, when everyone arrived, we handed over the letter to the chief, cigarettes and T-shirts, everything was fine, got the canoes, and we off we went down to, to look at the colony. So we uncovered an amazing world there, and a few years later, we went back with a diving team, archaeological team and everything, and we found the colony underneath the rainforest, the palm trees that were still there. And you could find the trading beads, we found muskets left over by the colonists, we found the well where they eked out their last water, because of course, not only were the mosquitoes attacking them, but so were the Spanish. And King William in England refused to allow them to trade with anyone. So they were starved to death of trade, starved to death with food. There were a few resupplies, it all went wrong. And they escaped back to England. We could document all this. We even found some of the wrecks under the bay with cannons encrusted in coral all those years ago. So what happened to William Patterson? Well, he was a survivor. He lost his wife and child in the Darien colony, but he managed to get back on a ship and he made it all the way back to Scotland via New York. Years later, they came back and said, oh, how's, our, how's that nice colony doing? Because, you know, they didn't have um, mobile phones in those days. You couldn't exactly get a message back. They wouldn't hear anything for months and months and months. So when he came back and said, I'm terribly sorry, guys, it's been a total disaster. You lost all your money and all his sponsors and investors were furious. Scotland was left with a massive debt. So what did he do? William Patterson. Let's go back down to the Bank of England, which I helped to start. So he went back down across the border into England and pleaded with King William to say, will you pay off the debts of Scotland? And King William looked him in the eye and said, yes, I will, but on one condition. The Parliament of Scotland and England have to join as one. Who could imagine that the joining of England and Scotland was born because of a mess up with nature in the rainforest of Panama? But that's the truth, and that's what happened. And it gets better because King William sent a whole lot of money north of the border, and that money became the origin of the Royal Bank of Scotland. Now let's take our story 300 years, in fact 326 years, up to the present day. What happened? Well, a little bit before that, guess what happened to the Royal Bank of Scotland? 
kaboom, it became a massive success. The Royal Bank of Scotland in 2007 was one of the biggest banks in the whole world, thanks to somebody who popularly became known as Fred the Shred, who was running the bank at the time. But then we had a banking crisis, 2008. Everything went down the pan because people were passing mortgages around like past the parcel, and you wrapped it up in a piece of paper, pass it on the next guy, add some value, get them to pay more, wrap it up in a bit of silver paper, pass it on, put it some more, wrap it up in a bit of gold paper, and it's incredibly valuable, but in the middle is a dog turd. That's actually what happened. Once you peeled it all off, and people peeled them all off and peeled them off, they suddenly said, good God, there's a dog turd. It's not worth anything at all. That's how the money collapsed, and the money supply went down. Goodbye, Bank of Scotland. So what had to happen? Those English people then had to bail it out again. Just like the, just like the Darien disaster, the Royal Bank of Scotland disaster happened that way. And the English people, the British people, still own the bank today. They haven't been able to get their money back yet. But what happened to the last governor of the Bank of England? Well, his name was Mark Carney. And uh, he stood down in 2020. He's not, he is the last bank. And of course, there's a new one now. And he won't be the last. But Mark Carney was the last governor of the Bank of England up until uh, 2020. And he is somebody who I think got nature right. He was a Canadian. He was actually governor of the, uh, of the Bank of Canada. He was a Goldman Sachs guy and he actually ran uh, the uh, Bank of Canada. He was brought over here to try and get us out of the mess after 2008. Not everybody likes what he did, but he didn't do a bad job. But the one thing he did a really good job of. In 2015, he made a wonderful speech. It's commonly known as the tragedy of the horizon speech. What he said in that speech is that climate change is a classic tragedy of the horizon. In other words, it's so far on the horizon that we don't really see it. And therefore, we don't act today to solve the problem, which is coming tomorrow. In one of my earlier podcasts, it says, like a punch in slow motion. And he said, we have to solve that. And we have to solve it by making it important for the finance sector to report on their climate liabilities in their portfolios, whether you're a bank, investor, insurer. What are you putting your money in? Are you putting it into things which are making the problem worse or better? And how do we even know that? How do we create the data, the tracking mechanisms, the standards, the reporting, the disclosure of what you're doing about climate in your portfolio? Well, not everybody liked it, but he came up with this idea of a task force for climate-related financial disclosure. Perhaps if old William Patterson, a few years before, had said, I've got to have a bit of rainforest and mosquito disclosure in his business plan, people might have been a bit, a bit more worried about what he was trying to do. So by putting climate disclosure in there as a requirement, voluntary, for the finance sector, it forced people to start thinking about climate change seriously. And of course, he did this together with uh, Michael Bloomberg, who ran all those Bloomberg terminals that I think I've talked about before, which is how three quarters of the financial decisions that are made in the Western world are made through Bloomberg terminals, where you gather the data on companies and make a decision whether to invest, buy or not buy. 
They have a lot of data in them. And so with Michael Bloomberg, he also got the message too, and the two of them, and they needed support. They needed a mandate. And that mandate came from the Financial Stability Board and above them, the G20, which is the 20 wealthy nations that get together and have a waffle every so often. And then they said the Financial Stability Board should mandate this task force to be created. It wasn't perfect. Mark Carney wanted a lot more than he got. But in the end, they got a task force up there. And they, 2015, in December, that was the great Christmas present that Michael Bloomberg and Mark Carney gave to the planet, which is they set up this task force. And as a result of that, and I've watched this for 40 years to see how nobody paid attention to this climate change thing really seriously in the financial sector until two things happened. One was the Paris Agreement in 2015, and secondly, the setting up of the task force. Whoa, the governments look like they're serious, and we now need to know how to report on this stuff. Frameworks, standards, data. They took it seriously. And so this task force really was set up. That was Mark Carney's present to the planet. And I think it was a really good thing for a governor of the Banking of England to do that, because usually this is not something they pay much attention to. But he did. And it has been instrumental, the creation of that task force for nature-related financial disclosure has been instrumental, in certainly in the financial institutions I talk to, in saying, yeah, it's woken us up to climate, we're getting ready, but they're not there yet. It hasn't really changed all that much in decision-making and the movement of money. And I've said before, unless we change the movement of money, we're going to continue to finance ourselves into extinction, and climate is part of that. We have to change the movement of money, so we draw money away from the bad things and invest in the good things. So, sorry, yes, coal, being starved of cash, certainly in the Western world, fossil fuels under pressure is something we all have to come to terms with, and putting money into renewable energy and other kinds of things will make our planet safer. So this task force is starting that process. It's still voluntary, but in France it's not. There is a mandate to do it there. So I've been thinking a few years ago, what comes next? What do we need to do after the climate task force? Wouldn't it be good to have a, a task force for nature? So 18 months ago in January in 2019, I found myself in Davos uh, going to the World Economic Forum. I was on the wrong side of the mountain in a little village called Closters, where I had a friend of mine, I was staying there. And I had to get to a meeting on the other side of the mountain really quick to go to this big dinner. It was going to be the dinner of all the nature people. Because in Davos, nobody talked about nature until a few years ago. Suddenly, it's got up and up the agenda. And all the big corporates and the CEOs who go there started to think about climate. But they're just beginning to think about nature. And the World Wildlife Fund has been brilliant. And there was going to be this big dinner, bringing everyone together. Al Gore was going to speak. So I'm a bit late, got to get to the dinner. The quickest way to get over the mountain, I thought, is to ski over. I love skiing, always ski, learnt to ski in Davos. But you know, how do you ski and then come out with the right clothes on? Uh, and I thought of James Bond in that movie. He said, well, you know, if you can put your suit on under a onesie, maybe I can do it. So I got in, put my suit on and tie and shirt and everything, put on my onesie, went to the cable car, up onto the top of the mountain, leapt out of the cable car, skied flat out down the mountain. And people were a bit startled when I turned up to this thing and unzipped my onesie and stepped out of it in a suit and got my shiny black shoes out of my backpack and went in to the meetings. I went into this huge dinner, massive tent, probably 400 people there on tables. And I was sitting on the finance table by a wonderful 
piece of luck. Who did I find myself sitting to but none other than the chief advisor to Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England? So I said to him, you know what, this, um, it's all very well with the TCFD and things, but what about going beyond carbon? What about thinking about nature? You know, why don't we create a task force for nature-related financial disclosure? Much to my surprise, he said, you know what, that's a really good idea. But nobody knows how to do it. So I said, well, why don't we try and find out? And that conversation was the beginning of what I believe will come, will come next, which is the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure, TNFD. And now it's popping up all around. 18 months has gone by uh, with a lot of friends of mine. We've been creating momentum in 2019 with lots of experts, getting engaged with the financial sector, talking to financial regulators and governments. Do you know what? I think it's all going to happen. And I hope we'll be able to launch early next year, in 2021, the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosure. And that will be a great present for the planet, won't it? So I'm just going to end this podcast with a slightly sad note because of the times we're in. I want to dedicate it to someone called Ruth Mindell. Ruth was somebody I knew uh, all my life, and she came with me on that expedition led by Colonel Blasher Snell. We knew him as Blashers. She was one of the team, and her job was to get us lots of free things like radios, outboard motors, and food. She was in charge of sponsorship, and we used to call her Rip Em Off Ruthie because she was absolutely brilliant at it. And we went there, down to the Scottish colony, Ruth, young, never been in the forest before, actually much happier in a town. And I can remember times when she got covered in ticks in the rainforest and just carried on. Amazing, wonderful woman. And all her life, she's been dedicated to expeditions and to the Scientific Exploration Society, which I spent so many good years in. And she was a fighter. But sadly, COVID-19 got her just two weeks ago. And she is no more. So I wanted to dedicate this podcast to Ruth, to Panama, to our days, thinking about the first governor of the Bank of England. And I hope I've introduced you to the last governor of the Bank of England, who has given such a wonderful Christmas present to the planet back in 2015. I'm Andrew Mitchell, and you've been listening to Don't Mess With Nature. Tune in next time for more stories of nature and money. Thank you.